Last week we began putting down a few principles that are important to understand when you come to a series like this. A series like this is different. It's very relationally driven, but it's also very biblical because, number one, the stories of the Bible are about people who are just like you and me. They had anxiety. They had frustrations. They had emotional breakdowns. They had moments of great confusion. There were times when they lost their way. There were times when it took a mustard seed of faith to turn everything around. And so they had faith, and sometimes it was their plan B that worked in the end. The second thing that we need to understand when we come to a series like this about relationships is that figuring out how biblical wisdom shapes real life is the real challenge of life. There are biblical principles that can sustain us as we go through storms, and every storm will run out of rain, and every night will end up with a new dawn. And so you have opportunities to see things in new ways and to understand life at different levels when you understand the biblical principles that undergird life, that give us a strong foundation for life. And then finally, I said, Accepting Jesus into your life doesn't solve all your problems. It doesn't sound right, but it is right. Accepting Jesus into your life can be a new beginning for your life. It can be a beginning of solving your problems in a, in a whole new way. But it doesn't overnight just change all the problem areas of your life. Oftentimes, God is saying, we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do together And we're going to do that for the rest of your life. And one of the things we're going to work on is the drama of your inner cast of characters. Our lives are are filled with drama. My life is filled with drama all the time. Sometimes when I'm not here at the church being a pastor, I am an assistant babysitter in Williamsburg. Uh, My wife and I go up to watch our grandchildren. I'm the assistant because I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just there to do whatever they, they tell me to do. So the other day, Gail surprises me. She says, I have to take Olivia out somewhere. Can you stay at the house with Sophia and just watch her? And I said, I'm not sure. She said, can you do this? I said, okay, I'll do it. So I took the challenge. And all of a sudden, I was in Sophia's world, and she was teaching school. And here she is. She was my teacher. This is Sophia in her little makeshift backyard uh, store. You can buy a fly swatter at this store. You can buy a bottle of root beer at this store. You can buy a pair of socks at this store. You can buy a pair of Yankee sunglasses at this store. There are a lot of things you can buy at the banana box store with Sophia. And she said, let's go inside and play school. So we went inside and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I found that I was in school with another pupil. And I was the only human being there, but the other pupil was a guy named Frog. And Frog... Frog was kind of easy going. I had Sophia take the picture. This is an actual picture of me in school with Frog. Frog was sort of a genuine kind of a guy. Uh, He didn't talk to me a lot. Somehow he was talking to Sophia, and he was getting a lot of the right answers to the questions. He was actually doing better in school than I was. But then Frog had some, some personal needs. He asked for a hall pass, and right next to the classroom, there was a, a restroom facility where Frog went 
for a little while to do something very froggy. And uh, please don't watch that for very long. You'll get disturbed and you'll have to leave the building. But, uh, but there's a lot of drama in life. With little kids, there's a lot of drama. But with big kids like us, there's a lot of drama too. I was doing a wedding here yesterday. The wedding was at 3 o'clock. At 3 o'clock, there wasn't a bride in sight. The last time I looked, you had to have a bride to do a wedding. I was here. I was ready to go. No bride, they said to me. I said, well, I'm going to go out and do something. I left. I went down the road. I did something. I figured I have to get a few things done. I'll come back later. I came back. The rings weren't here. We had a bride. We didn't have rings. People are searching for rings. People are driving up and down the East Coast from Fort Lauderdale to Bangor, Maine to find the, the rings. Finally, the rings showed up. The bride showed up. I showed up. But there was a lot of drama. There is drama all the time. Lance Armstrong on Oprah this week. There's going to be drama. He said she can ask me anything she wants to ask me. Duke losing to NC State. Drama. Drama. Peyton Manning going down. He was the guy I was rooting for. Who do I root for now? I don't know. Drama. Green Bay. Are you kidding me? Drama in Green Bay. Wouldn't want to be in Green Bay today. The Bible tells stories of drama too. Stories where people have ups and downs and struggles and heartaches and and moments when they just don't know what to do. Sometimes people are telling lies about other people. Sometimes there are plots to take people out. And in this particular story, chapter four of the book of Esther, there's a lot of drama. Let me read this to you. Esther chapter four. This chapter comes right after we learn about this plot that a man named Haman has brought against the Jews. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he ripped his clothes to shreds and put on sackcloth and ashes. Then he went out in the streets of the city, crying out in loud and bitter cries. He came only as far as the king's gate, for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's gate. As the king's order was posted in every province, there was loud lament among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and most of them stretched out on sackcloth and ashes. Sometimes the drama of our lives drives us to our knees. Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. The queen was stunned. She sent fresh clothes to Mordecai. He was the one who had taken care of her since she was a little girl. She had lost her mother and her father, and her cousin Mordecai became like a father to her and brought her up. She sent him fresh clothes so he could take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Esther called for Hathak, one of the royal eunuchs, whom the king had assigned to wait on her and told him to go to Mordecai and get the full story of what was happening. They didn't have the ability to text back then. So they had people like Hathak. He was the text. And so he would go and deliver the text. He would come back with the text. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the town square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He also told him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to deposit in the royal bank to finance the massacre of the Jews. Payoffs, treachery, back rooms, it's all a part of the drama of life. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the, of the bulletin that had been posted in Susa ordering the massacre so he could show it to Esther when he reported back with instructions to go to the king and intercede and plead for him for her people. Here's the poster 
that's up everywhere you go. This is what the poster looks like. Hathak came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. Esther talked it over with Hathak and then sent him back. He was the text, sent him back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. Death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. Don't you understand? Don't you understand how, how much danger you're asking me to, to look at right now? Don't you? Even though you cared for me as a little girl, do you want me to put my life on the line now? When Hathak told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Maybe your life got to this place in time for this reason. The story in Esther contains the themes of the stories of our lives, the drama of our lives. First, we are all connected to each other in some way. The tragedy that happened in Connecticut once again taught us that lesson. We are all connected to each other in some way. We will face trouble or danger at some point in our lives. Our lives will will take us into situations when we face danger and we're looking danger in the face, eye to eye, when we face trouble that we don't understand the stress and the trouble overwhelms us. It, It rolls over us wave after wave after wave and we don't know what to do. We feel cornered. We will have to decide who to tell the truth to. Who will we tell the truth to? The truth about who we really are. The truth about what's going on inside. Just like Lance Armstrong has decided he will tell the truth to Oprah. Somebody, somewhere, someday has to hear the truth about you, with you. We will realize that where we are and who we are intersects with what God is doing in the world today. That's one of the great moments of your life when you realize, just like Esther was realizing, that where you are and who you are intersects with what God is doing in the world. It's what I call the the intersection of sometimes secular culture and sacred history. And the moment that, that you have that epiphany, the moment that you wake up and you realize that your life is significant. It's significant because God gave you this life and there's a purpose for it and God is asking you to do something amazing with your life. That's a moment when you will start your life all over again. And then finally, someday, I will have to decide which me I am. Someday you will have to decide which me you are. You walked in here this morning, which me walked in here. In his book, The Me I Want to Be, John Ortberg describes these six me's 
Let me detail them for you. The first me that you might be is the me I pretend to be. The me that, that I, I want you to see. I, I, I put myself out here. I, I want you to think I'm good. I want you to think I, I know things. I want you to think I have connections. I want you to think that everything about me is important and it's, it's good. This is the me that, that I pretend to be. Sometimes when we are the me I pretend to be, we do interesting things. Not too long ago, I had the opportunity with my wife, Gail, to meet Mitt Romney. And so we met Mitt, and here's a picture of us meeting him. Here we are standing together with Mitt. It was one of those great moments for me. I thought, I'm going to be close up and personal right here with the next president of the United States. Didn't work out, right? But it, it, it could have, okay? But then after I got this picture, I said, I can never use this picture or frame this picture because this is me pretending to be somebody that I'm not. And if you look closely at the picture, it's, it's got a sheep eating, eating off of my head. <laughs> it's like God said, yeah, you think you're something, Simone. Pretend to be this. You know, pretend to be a shepherd. What are the sheep doing eating off of my head? what happens when you pretend. Then there's the, the me I think I should be. Uh, you know, I think I, I should be smarter in, in business, or I think I should read more books, or I think I should help people more. And, and while some of those things are, are good things, are they really who you are? Maybe you don't really like to read books. Maybe you like to listen to tapes. Uh, maybe you're more of an introvert than an extrovert, and, and you would do better being a person who prays more for people than who bees more with people, if that's correct English. But, yeah, I'm not sure half the time. So, But it's not about what you should be. It's not about what you can pretend to be. Then there's the me other people want me to be, and other people want you to be a lot of things. Uh, your mother and father, when it starts, when you start out in life, they want you to be something. And then your teachers want you to be something. And sometimes church wants you to, to be something. You get married and, and your spouse wants you to be something or your kids want you to be something. Uh, I remember once I, I, I didn't have a lot of money and I bought this, this car. This car was lime green. It was, it was two-tone lime green. It was an awful-looking car, but it was the only car I could afford. And I brought it home, and everybody looked the other way. Like, you shouldn't have that car. My kids, I went to pick them up at school. They saw me coming. They went like this. Like, Keep going, Dad. You should be doing better than that. I couldn't. That's all I could do. Uh, there's the, the me I'm afraid God wants me to be. This is sometimes we think that if we really give God everything, if we say, God, you can have all of me, you can have all of my stuff, you can have all of my resources, we're somehow afraid that God will pull the rug out from under us. He'll say, okay, I'll make you destitute. Okay, I'll make you go to Sri Lanka. Okay, I'll make you do all kinds of things that you don't want to do. God isn't like that. God has never been like that. But we have this me that I'm afraid God wants me to be. And there's the me that I fail to be. Oftentimes, at some point in our lives, we're the, the me that I fail to be. Uh, I didn't put enough into that relationship. I didn't care enough about that career. I didn't put in the time that I should have 
put in developing my leadership abilities. Uh, everybody, because there are no perfect people in the world. Everyone comes to a moment of failure. But it's that moment of failure sometimes that is the prelude to everything else. That moment of failure never has to be the end of who you are because there's this one final me. It's the me I am meant to be. The me you are meant to be is the me that that God calls out of you. It's the me that God planned for you since before time began. It's everything that he gave to you. It's your intellect. It's your personality. It's all your experience. It's what he can take and use and shape for a future that is good, that has integrity, where you give hope to others and you build something that has significance in in his economy and the world. This me that you were meant to be is the me that you should bring here, is the me that you should embrace, is the me that you should look for all the time. As a matter of fact, it's the only should that you should ever live by. Jesus talked about an inner cast of characters. He said in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. He was basically saying, you've got so much stuff going on inside that's, that's confusing, that's messy, that's about manipulation, that's about you trying to sort of slip slide your way through life until you get that figured out. You can never be the me that you were meant to be. He also said in, in the verse that's above that verse, these words, First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So in Matthew 23, 26, and 27, he kind of lays out a prescription. He says, you've got to look at the inside. You've got to look at the inner cast of characters, because when those inner characters start getting in the way, you can never be who you were meant to be. When those characters are the the be-all and end-all of your life, you aren't even living your life. You're living something, but it's not really your life. It's certainly not the life you want to live. Let me tell you about your inner cast of characters. This concept came to me from Dr. Dan Newharth, who wrote a great book called Secrets You Keep From Yourself. It's It's a very detailed book that talks about how you unravel all of these inner characters to be that me that you were meant to be. The first member of this inner cast of characters is the person we call the movie maker. The movie maker is about entertaining yourself with thoughts that can or will never come true. If you're a movie maker, you major in fantasies that derail and destroy the real you. The movie maker is always in some kind of fantasy world about this this happens and I think this might happen. I think I can do this and none of it is really based in reality at all. Then there's the character of the indulger. The indulger distracts himself or herself with activities that may seem harmless or even look positive, 
but they keep you from being at the cutting edge of your life. Let me give you a picture of an indulger. I was at 7-Eleven yesterday, ran in, ran out for a cup of coffee. When I got to the counter, I saw this. Eat brownies, get muscles. I never heard it put that way before. Suddenly, I felt better. I felt better about my life, about my future, about what I was going to do next. And then I thought, that can't be true. If you read the fine print underneath, it says something like, you know, join a gym, run 10 miles every day, take your vitamins, you know, and then if you have a brownie once in a while, it really doesn't matter. But in the big print, eat brownies, get muscles. This is what the indulger does all the time. You distract yourselves with activities that may seem harmless or even look positive, but they keep you from being at the cutting edge of who you need to be, the persuader. The persuader means that you're the master of make-it-fit reasoning. You sacrifice flexibility and you look for the short-term gain to carry the long-term demand, which it can't. It can't ever do that. You don't like looking at your patterns of self-deception, and we all have patterns of self-deception. A man you know and probably like is a guy named Al Roker. And Al Roker just came out with this book called Never Going Back. It's about his whole struggle with weight loss. And and here's a section where he reveals his inner persuader. Before my bypass, I had stopped getting on the scale altogether or watching myself on television for that matter. The fact is, I didn't want to know the truth. I somehow convinced myself that it was because I didn't need to know. My self-image was just fine. But there are two brutal truths I've come to know for sure. First, you can't hide your weight on a scale. And second, you can't hide your weight on camera. Everyone has heard the adage that a television camera adds 10 pounds. My theory was that at the Today Show, it's shot with five cameras, so they must have added 50 pounds. Deep down, I stopped weighing myself and watching the show because I knew the truth and I didn't like what I was seeing. It was too difficult to face, so I hid my head in the sand and pretended not to care. You're the master of make-it-fit reasoning. You sacrifice flexibility and look for the short-term gain to carry the long-term demand, which it can't. You're the persuader. You don't like looking at your patterns of self-deception. Or maybe you're Dr. No. You're the systematic knee-jerk no person, and that keeps you in control and doesn't let others through the door of your heart. Or maybe you're mini-me, the character, the inner character, mini-me. You seek safety and security by flying under everyone's radar. If I just keep off into the corner, if I just do my job and I don't ruffle anybody's feathers, I'm going to survive. I'm going to make it through. I'm going to keep minimizing myself so I become invisible to the vast populace around me. Or the character that we call Captain Superior. You look for your identity through winning everything or putting everyone down who's around you. You are overly sarcastic. You must quash. You must be victorious. You must win. Your captain superior. The escape artist is an interesting character. You procrastinate, you space out, or give up. In that way, you avoid others' demands on your time and energy. You never really 
have to do anything if you can slip slide away long enough. King Kong. King Kong means that you shut down your conscience and give in to your impulses. You dominate, you crush, you roar. Everyone knows you're there until it all comes crashing down and your roar becomes a whimper in the end. The Drameteer is our final cast member. You seek attention by supersizing your emotions and controlling others by using emotional hooks. Your cold is definitely pneumonia. You've got to be out for three weeks. Every party you're at is the party of the year because you are there. Your movie maker fantasies about getting the perfect job and writing the perfect script or meeting the perfect person overwhelm, but they overwhelm only you. Your indulger takes the rest of the day off a lot. Your persuader agrees to almost everything even though he, she can't possibly deliver tangible results. Your doctor knows, says you'll get back to her and avoids her for a month. Your mini-me says, you're too tired to do anything. Just kind of let me sit over here and nobody notice me. Your captain superior tells everyone how it should be done. And you know the way it should be done. Your escape artist agrees, then forgets about it. You don't really have to do anything. Your King Kong turns a wake of relational destruction. People are laying all over the place because you have roared. Your dramateur pushes tears and whining and flirting to the limit and eats the floodlights of attention for breakfast. It can be difficult to know in the midst of the drama of life whether a character is defeating or enhancing. Is it a steely resolve that keeps you going or a stubbornness, a vile stubbornness that brings you down. And that's the problem with these characters. You see, some of us have lived in these characters for such a long time, we don't know the difference between who they are and who we are. But let me give you a simple test that'll help you understand the difference. Jesus once said, by their fruits, you will know them. And so when you see a character in your life, and that character is producing good things. That character is, is making a difference in people's lives. That character is all about hope and about integrity and about sacrifice and about serving. Then that's good fruit that's coming out of that character's personality. You can be a mini-me, that's good, and you can be a captain superior, that's good. It's the other side that you have to worry about. The other side is when you let their destructive tendencies and their destructive personalities wreak havoc. And that's not good fruit. So you always have to assess, is this something good that's coming out of this part of my life? Or is this something very wrong that's coming out of this part of my life? You see, we all have these characters. Maybe some of us have one or two. Maybe some of us have six or seven. And it's not that you necessarily are going to get rid of some of these characters. Some of these characters are tied to your DNA or your personality. But you do have the responsibility to manage them. You do have the responsibility to put a harness of wisdom on them. 
And that's where wisdom comes in. That's where biblical principles save us from having to live in a cardboard box we, we constructed out of the insight of a me who can never be. There's some me's that have no business constructing the future and wisdom will give you the understanding of how to deal with that. The only power an inner character has is the power you give him or her. That's why the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is so important. The Holy Spirit is God working inside of you to make you into the me you were meant to be. And that's a lot of what defines the Christian life. That's a lot of what Jesus was dealing with when he was dealing with people. He was dealing with a process of change that he would guide and shape and superintend for a long time by the power of his spirit in a person's life. Whether that person was Paul, whether that person was Mary, whether that person was Moses, whether that person was Esther, whether that person is you. His desire is to change you over the rest of your life by allowing his spirit to be at work in you and through you with you understanding that wisdom puts the harness and the reins on your cast of inner characters. I said last week that you were never supposed to craft your life alone and you're not and you can't. That's why we're here this morning so we can learn together, so that we can grow together, so that we can stretch together. Life is filled with trauma, yours and mine. And a lot of it relates to the me that you're trying to find. And a lot of it relates to, relates to your inner cast of characters that are swarming for attention. A long, long time ago, Esther, Esther battled her mini-me her fly under the king's fury me. But God won that wrestling match in her heart. And so we know he can win the battles in our hearts also. But never forget, it took her cousin's wisdom, the man who brought her up since she was a little girl, it took his wisdom to help her. It took his wisdom to nudge her, to push her. And so we end today with three unglued questions that you must answer. First, which me are you right now? In other words, which me came in here this morning? The me other people want you to be? The me that's afraid of what God is going to do if you give him your whole life? Which me came in here this morning? You have to admit the truth about that. Second, which inner character most brings you down? Which inner character is defeating you and poking you and stealing the joy of life right out from under you? Which character is sitting in your seat with you right now? Which character will laugh at you by the time you get to your car and say, you don't really want to get rid of me, do you? We have such a good time together, you and me. You like me. I'm the persuader. You like me. I'm King Kong. You like me. We get to tell everybody what to do and how to do it. Which character most brings you down? And then finally, who will you ask to help you? Who will you ask 
to help you? Who will be the one you say, please push me toward the me I was meant to be? Please help me learn how wisdom can manage these characters in my life so that what is good and hopeful and strong comes from my life over the years of my life. And so late last night, a letter started to show up. And at first I thought the letter was for me. And then I stopped and I realized it was for you. Dear friends, the real struggle of life isn't what life throws at you. It's what you throw at life. And there are two things to throw that will always change the drama. Many of you say you don't like organized religion. I don't either. I like wisdom. It works much better anyway. But let's start at the beginning. That's something I'm good at. You were born. However old you will be in 2013 is the expanse of your life so far. Maybe you've lived a season or two. Maybe you've lived many seasons. It really doesn't matter. What matters is listening to me when I speak to your heart. What matters is believing in my plans and the storing up of wisdom. Wisdom is what helps you confront your cast of characters. Wisdom is what leads you to the me you were meant to be. When you were young, you knew this by instinct. As you grew older, however, your parents and your teachers and your church began to place expectations on you to become something. They didn't always base those expectations on anything related to what I put in you. And so you bounced here and there looking for clues to you. At best, this is a bumbling process managed by imperfect, loving people. At worst, it is a manipulative drama that renders you confused for a long time about what truly matters for yourself and others. It's the bumbling meshed with manipulation that creates your inner characters. These characters are not you, but they take your name. These characters are not you, but they impersonate your feelings until you're deluded into thinking they're all that remains of who you once were. These characters start out as doorways to what appears to be freedom and end up being wormholes to endless misery. I know you're wearied by relational failure. I know you secretly hope for more than a manufactured thrill once upon a weekend. So remember, it isn't what life throws at you, it's what you throw at life. When you throw gut-level faith at life, life sheds its tight skin and stretches toward eternity. Gut-level faith brings with it anxiety and sometimes a plan B. But a plan B with me in it is usually a plan A with a mask on. Your second throw is who you were meant to be because I made you that way. I put a once in a universe person inside you who must grapple with challenge and risk. With that toss, your foolish characters cower in fear of their impending doom. Throw gut level faith. Throw your best me. It works because I made it that way. I don't like organized religion either. I like wisdom. Time for the drama to end. Time for you to begin. Maybe you came to the kingdom for such a time as this, God. Dear Heavenly Father, we're caught up in the 
dramas of our lives, the outer dramas, relationships, family, work, career, demands, stresses, strains, ups, downs, in-betweens all the time. And we're caught up in the inner drama, these characters that push and pull, these me that, that vie for preeminence. Father, allow us today, allow us right now that sense of freedom to to choose to be the me that we were meant to be, the me you made us to be, and allow us, Father, the wisdom to put in abeyance these characters that just want to pull us back and forth and manipulate us. Oh, Father, by your grace, by your peace, by your vision, by your passion, may we live lives of great hope and destiny. For we give our lives today. We give our dramas today into your holy hands. In Jesus' name, amen.